0: Father, we come to you now in the name of your son, Jesus, and we ask that as we open up your word, that you would open up our hearts and our lives and that you would speak to us and that you would make us attentive to your voice. We pray, oh God, that your voice would break into those deep crevices in our hearts that maybe are hidden where we need to be exposed, where we need to experience your love. And I pray, oh God, that you would do the work that only you could do this evening, that you would open hearts and minds to your grace and that in experiencing your grace, you would change us. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen, amen. So this last week, our family spent some time together trying to figure out the perfect Halloween costume for our dog, Brutus. And so I want to share with you the top uh, three kind of the three runner-ups, and then I wanted to share with you the final choice we had for these uh, uh, costumes. So this right here, this is James Bond, Brutus. There's George Washington, Brutus. Uh, This is 80s breakdancer, Brutus. And then the winner was uh, Creepy Brutus. Yeah, right? That is the creepiest thing you've ever seen. (laughs) Wow. I feel sorry for you all sitting over there right in front of that TV. It almost looks like he's going to jump out and do something to you, doesn't it? But you know, over the last week, as we dressed up Brutus in these various incendiary kind of like human artifacts, a little human hair and a little human jacket and a little human headband, uh, we found that even though we tried to dress Brutus like a person, we couldn't make the dog into a person. It takes more than a facade. It takes more than a little dressing in order to change a dog into a person. And I think this is a parable in some sense for many, many of us. You know, it takes a whole lot more than simply a little bit of religion and maybe going to church or a little Bible reading or a little Christian lingo to actually change us into being different kinds of people. I remember meeting in my office with her and she said this, she said, you know, he's been going to church for years and he reads his Bible and he serves in the church, but he is just as mean now as he ever was. And of course, many of you have experienced something of that same lack of change, maybe from some people in your own life. And maybe for some of you, that is you. You, you have been struggling with the same addictive patterns, uh, the same dysfunctional behavior, Uh, the same destructive attitudes as you have for years and years. And it seems like you keep going to church and you wanted to change, but you just aren't changing. Now, of course, uh, this isn't the story for everyone. There are those people whose lives do seem to change over the long course of time. And you know them, and I do too. You know, over uh, a couple weeks ago, I was meeting uh, with uh, a lady in our church family whose name is Maureen Georgiades. And she has been walking with Jesus for decades. And when I meet with Maureen, I just think, I want to be like Maureen when I get to be her age. This is a woman who knows peace and she knows joy. And she is generous and she's gracious and she's kind and she's compassionate and she has a heart for other people. And she, she even now, you know, even as she's in her bed and she's, she's in pain and she's sick and, and, and she's really in her final weeks of life in many respects, and yet nonetheless, she thinks about other people. And I think when I get to be that age, I want to exhibit that kind of Christian character. But of course, there are those people, you know them as well as I do, for whom they just have not changed. And actually, as they get on in life, even though they've spent years in church, some people get more grumpy as time goes on. And they get a little more mean-spirited as time goes on, and a little more self-righteous and hypocritical and judgmental. And you just think church is just not doing them any good. And sometimes we wonder, what's the distinction? What's the difference between the person who changes and the person who doesn't change? And is there some dynamic at work in the life of somebody like a Maureen whose heart is changing? Is there something at work in her life that may be missing from some other people's lives? Is there a dynamic to Christian change? And this morning and uh, this evening with you all, I, wanted to, I want to explore together the answer to that question from Colossians chapter three, because this is a chapter that is all about Christian change. You could say that the, in this chapter, uh, Paul is exploring the dynamic of Christian change. Now, there's a whole lot that could be said about this topic, and we're only looking at one little section in scripture. But what he says here is incredibly important for us in kind of getting our hands onto and wrapping our minds around the true dynamic of Christian change. It's interesting, in uh, chapter uh, 2, verse 23, Paul says this, he says, These indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But then he says this, they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. In other words, he's alluding to a type of religious practice that is full of ritual and man-made rules and ascetic practices and even profound spiritual experiences. They contain all of this and yet still it does someone no good. But then he contrasts this version kind of of religion that does someone no good with the dynamic that really is at work in the heart and life of somebody who experiences genuine character change. And he explores that in chapter three, verses one, all the way down to verse 17. And we're going to be kind of focused uh, today on verses five down to verse 11. But I want to draw to your attention three features, uh, three aspects of the dynamic of Christian change. Now, a little caveat as we walk through each one of these tonight. So each one of these things are something of a signpost that alerts us to a trailhead. And the signpost, it shows you where the journey begins, but the signpost is not the journey itself. And so today we're going to be looking together at the signpost. It's going to clarify for us a dynamic. But this dynamic must be put into practice over the long course of the Christian life. This is a long obedience in the same direction. This is a journey that must be embarked upon with God by our side and behind us and before us and with friends and with brothers and sisters around us on this journey. But let's walk together through each one of these kind of features that I think really reflect the dynamic of Christian change. Number one, it involves a compelling vision. Number one, it involves a compelling vision And notice how Paul puts it in chapter 3, verse 9 and 10. After he he gives these exhortations, put to death the deeds of the flesh. And then a little bit later, he says, and now you must put off all of these. And then when you get to verse 9, he gives the justification or the reason why we must take some radical action against really dysfunctional, destructive, sinful behavior in our life. And here's what he says. Do not lie to one another. Why? Why? seeing that you have put off the old self with its practice and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. He says, you have put off the old self and you have put on the new self. And almost everybody thinks that Paul here is referring back to their experience and our experience of baptism and what happens in the waters of baptism. Well, in baptism, a person is plunged underneath the water and they're brought back up. They're plunged into death and they're brought to share in the resurrection of Jesus. Back in the early centuries of the church, it was very common for new converts to go down to uh, living waters of a running river. And uh, they would come down at twilight just before dawn began to break. And they would don these old, ragged, dirty robes. And they would go into the waters, and then they would pull off those old dirty robes, and then they would be plunged into the waters of baptism, and then they'd be brought out again. And then after they came out of the waters, they'd be wrapped in a new, bright, brilliant white robe. And this was to picture what happens to a person when they have faith in Jesus Christ. They come to share in the death and the resurrection of Jesus and all that it means. They say goodbye to an old self and to an old life, and they are raised with Jesus Christ into a new life and a new self. In other words, when you become a follower of Jesus, you are given a new identity. You are no longer defined by your past by your successes, by your failures, by the stupidest thing you've ever done, thank God. You have been defined by a new reality, and that reality is the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so you are given a new identity, but you are not just given a new identity through the waters of baptism and through our faith in Jesus Christ. When you convert and you become a follower of Jesus Christ, you are also given a new identity vocation. You not only put off an old self, an old way of life, and are raised in a new self and a new way of life, you are given a new vocation to put on this new way of life. In other words, we are called, we are invited by Jesus to become who we are. Who are we? Well, through Jesus, we have been clothed in the love of God and in the grace of God. We are a child of God. And now we are called throughout the duration of our Christian life to walk in that reality, to put on the way of Christ. And so notice what he says after he speaks about this past event, you have put off and you have put on. He now speaks in the next verses about our present vocation. He puts it like this. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. Just think about that. Just a person who is marked by those qualities. Compassion, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness. He says, bearing with one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, even as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all of these, you must put on love, which binds everything together in perfection. And so listen, here is God's vision for your life and for my life. That we would become people that are marked by compassion and gentleness and patience and forgiveness and love. This is God's heart for you. This is God's vision for you is that you become this kind of a person or we could put it like this or Jesus put it like this. He said, every disciple when they are fully trained will become like their master. In other words, if you are a disciple of Jesus, you will become compassionate like Jesus and loving like Jesus and patient like Jesus and forgiving like Jesus. So this is the vision that God has for your life. And let me just ask you, is this the vision that you have for your own life? Now, this is, this is, I I think this is pretty breathtaking because, you know, there are a lot of things I will never become. I am never going to play in the NBA. I know it's shocking. I will never be in the NFL. Uh, uh, there, there's educational achievements I'll never, you know, I, I will never enter into and I, I will never become, you know, a, a multimillionaire. Well, I don't, I'm still young. Could happen, right? But listen, there's a lot of stuff I I, I can never become. And it, it's not God's will for me to become, but what God's will is for me and for you to become is to become a person of character that is compelling and beautiful. And do you know why that's Okay. Because it is that kind of human being and not the rich human being and not the well-educated and the well-achieved and the successful human being that actually becomes the full and true human being who enters into the peace and joy that God intends for us. It's actually when we are living the way God intended us as these people that are marked out by compassion and kindness and patience and long-suffering. This is God's vision for our lives. And so again, let me just ask you, have you set that as your vision? You know, becoming a follower of Jesus, God's vision for us is not primarily that we would become more religious. It's not primarily that we would get the correct beliefs in our head. It's not primarily that you would get the right political party platforms. God's desire for us is that we would become people of character who reflect in our lives and in our attitudes and in our mindset, the very character of Jesus Christ. And so this is the compelling vision that he gives us. He says, look, this is your vocation is to put on this new identity, to put on the character of Christ. But after talking to us about this compelling vision, he moves to a settled intention that we must have. Look at what he says in verse uh, 5 down to verse 8. He puts it like this. He says, put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly in you. By the way, when he speaks there about something that is earthly, he doesn't simply mean that which is on the planet Earth. He's not contrasting uh, earthly things as being things that are on the planet Earth versus, you know, being caught up in the heavenly mindset, as Pastor Robert talked about last week. Instead, he's, cost, he's contrasting two realities. One reality that is defined by destructive patterns of sin with respect to sex and money, and how we use power, and how we use our words, and how we present ourselves. There are destructive and dehumanizing ways of being in this world, and that's set in contrast with a way of being in this world that is defined by the lordship of King Jesus and his healing, restorative, reconciling rule over our lives. And so he says, put to death all of that old stuff from this old reality, And then he describes it, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. He says, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. He's saying, God is against all of these destructive ways of being. He doesn't want us to be taken down by these things. He doesn't like them. He says, so turn away from them. He says, in these you once walked when you were living in them. This is part of your old past. You buried that in the waters of baptism. You buried that with Christ. He says, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. And so he talks here about taking decisive action against destructive patterns in your life and mine. Now think for a minute with me about some destructive pattern that you've been in. Anybody here ever know anything of being in a destructive pattern in your life? Using hurtful words toward other people, thinking bad thoughts about other people, being fixed on the wrong sort of things, engaged in self-destructive, self-harming kinds of behavior. Anybody here know anything about that? Anybody sitting next to somebody who does that sort of thing? You can go ahead and just tell them right about it right now. Just turn, turn to the person next to them and tell them that they're a sinner. But listen what he says. He says put to death and put off this old stuff. Now, this involves a lot of things, but at least it involves this these are strong verbs, put to death, put off. You rarely accidentally put something to death, right? You usually need to use some intention when you want to put something to death. And here is what growth and formation into the image of Christ involves, it involves a settled intention. You have to intend to become a person like Jesus. It's not enough simply to desire or to want something. You have to make it your intention to pursue it. You know, um, our family has spent, you know, a lot of time down in Mexico. I grew up going down to a northern Baja and doing surfing and we spent a few weeks there in mainland Mexico. And we've done some, a lot of trips, a lot of time down in Mexico. And every time I'm in Mexico, I find myself thinking the same thought. I wish I could speak Spanish. I'm like, I wish I could speak Spanish. But if you were to ask me, do you intend to learn Spanish? I would say, no, I don't. Because there's a, dif- there's a difference, a world of difference between desiring to do something and wanting to do something and intending to do it. And you know, one of the reasons why we fail in our life of discipleship to Jesus is because we don't intend to root out the anger or the greed or the lust or the self-destructive patterns with our words and our speech. We don't intend to root that out. We might bemoan it. We might wish it were different, but we don't intend to do anything about it. A while back, I I, I read a book. um, This is a great book. It was a book written back in the 17th century by a guy named William Law. And the title of the book was called A Serious Call to a Devout and Holy Life, which is not a book that would make the New York Times bestseller list today, would it? A Serious Call to a Devout and Holy Life. But I remember in reading this book, you know, it's kind of one of, these, one of these older books that you just are kind of agonizing through the thing because it's like this old language and thought patterns and you're like, and I remember I came across this one paragraph though that just struck me and he writes this. He said, uh, he, he starts in this little section talking about uh, why Christians today are more compromised than Christians of previous generations. Now, I don't know whether or not that was actually true in his day, but I'm assuming it was. But he said this. He said, If you will stop here and ask yourself why you are not as pious as the primitive Christians were, your own heart will tell you. It is neither through ignorance nor through inability, but purely because you have never thoroughly intended it. Isn't that interesting? He says it's not... Because of ignorance, it's not through inability, but purely because you have never thoroughly intended it. Now, don't misunderstand what he's saying. Uh, You need a whole lot more than intention. If your life is really going to reflect the beauty of Jesus, the compassion of Jesus, the patience of Jesus, the forgiveness of Jesus, the long-suffering of Jesus, you need a whole lot more than intention. You know, you need the power of the Holy Spirit and the grace of God. And you need friends to walk beside you. And you might need some spiritual disciplines that you practice in your life. There's a whole lot more than you need than intention. But there's nothing less that you need than intention. And so let me just ask you, do you intend to live differently? Now, I know some of you, you might, you might have a person in your life who you are nursing a grudge against, you are bitter towards, and you lie in bed at night and you rehearse the wrongs that they've done against you. And sometimes if you had a conversation with them in the day, then at night you, you kind of rehearse the conversation and you think about the things you wish you would have said to them if you just had it in you in the moment to say those mean, harsh things. Anybody else do that? And if I were to ask you, do you want to become a forgiving person who doesn't nurse grudges and hold on to bitterness? You might say, yeah, of course I do. But let me ask you, do you intend to break the power of bitterness and unforgiveness in your life? Some of you are caught in addictive patterns in your life. Maybe there's some of you tonight and who are listening online, you, you are caught up in substance abuse issues. And you wish, you wish you could be free. You're like, I I do wish I could be free. I don't like this. I don't like, you know, being caught in bondage to this. But then if somebody were to say, well, let's check you into a program. Let's go to AA. And you say, whoa, 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 I'm not ready for that. You see, you might want it, but do you intend to do it? And we could just play those examples out over and over and over again You want to become a different kind of person. You want more patience and love. You don't want to be as mean or as angry or as nasty or as enslaved to greed or whatever. But do you intend to become different? You see, if you're going to put something to death, if you're going to put off something, you have to have a settled intention. You have to have a settled intention. So you need, number one, a compelling vision of the kind of life that Jesus invites us into. And we need a settled intention that we will pursue that life. That life is important and it's valuable. I I don't want to simply be ambivalent. I I don't want to sit back and be numb and, and, and just be entertained to death. I actually want to become a human being of character and wholeness that actually contributes to the world, that, that, that contributes to my spouse or to my, my roommates or, or that makes a contribution to this world that, that does some good and that honors God. Like, I want my life to be that way. And you say, I don't just have that vision, but I actually I intend to pursue that. I am resolved to pursue this way of life. Thirdly, you also need radical and deliberate action. You need radical action and again, let's look back at the text. Look at what he says again. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Again, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. Just talking there about greed, this insatiable appetite for more and more stuff. He says, put that stuff to death. And then a little bit later, he says, and and put... He says a little bit later in verse eight, he says, but now you must put them all away, anger and wrath and malice and slander and obscene talk from your mouth. I like it. It's just like he pretty much gets everyone covered in these verses, doesn't he? All of these descriptive phrases, you ought to find something of yourself in in these passages that you can work on. You know, maybe the sexual thing is not your issue, but maybe anger is your issue. And maybe anger is not your issue, but maybe it's money. That's your issue. Or maybe it's slander. You just like to gossip. It's juicy. It, it's, it, you know, you like to share those nuggets, you know. But all of us in some space find ourselves engaging in destructive practices that actually hurt other people and hurt ourselves. And so he says, what is your thing? And then he says, take radical action against it. Now, a couple of things to note about this radical action we are called to take. Number one, I want you to note that he calls us to put to death what is earthly in us. Now, Do you see the, the, what he says there? He says, go after that stuff that you find in yourself. Now, what I find is it's a lot easier to spot stuff in other people than it is in myself. Do you find that same thing? And it's, it's, it seems to be a lot more enjoyable, doesn't it? Like finding fault with other people, exploring that fault, talking about that fault with other people. It is so much nicer to point out the sense of another. It's kind of painful to look at your own, isn't it? And Jesus said, look, he says, look, he says, don't look at the speck in your neighbor's eye and ignore the log in your own eye. And here he's calling us to actually pay attention to what's going on in ourselves, which means that if we're going to take radical action, we need self-awareness. We need to be aware of those destructive patterns in our own life. Those things that we're blind to, we need to wake up and we need to see it and name it and renounce it and turn away from it. So he says, put to death, that number one, it, it involves going after stuff in you. But of course, it's not just going after it. It also involves taking radical action against it. You know, and I think many times what we do instead of taking radical action against those, those little, you know those little sins in our life that we like to nurse and hold on to, is we kind of toy with them. A couple of weeks ago, uh, my dog Brutus, this is just going to be a Brutus sermon tonight. But we were sitting in our backyard and Brutus started to go after a little spider. And, and he, he, he kind of was, was running after the spider. And then he, 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 he plunged at it with this little snout and he pinned it down. It's actually not a little snout. snout. It's a big, powerful snout that Brutus has. He pins this, this spider down and he starts kind of like rolling it around with his nose And then he lifts it up and the spider's like all crinkled up. And then the spider kind of like opens up and then the spider starts walking away. And then Brutus goes after it again. And then he starts doing the same thing again. And then once again, you know, he like takes it inside of his mouth and then spits it out again. And then the spider opens up again and starts walking and then Brutus plunges it again. Brutus wasn't interested in killing it. He was interested in playing with it and i think very often the same is true in our own lives we are more interested in toying with and playing with darkness and stuff that really is for our own destruction stuff that's not healthy it's not good for you it's not good for me and yet we we kind of play with it we go and and if you are going to move toward health If you're going to move to human flourishing, where you're reflecting the character of Christ, you have got to go after that stuff with the vigilance and put it to death. Or as Jesus said, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away from you. And if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and toss it away. It is better for you to enter into the kingdom of God with one hand and one eye than to have two hands and two eyes and end up in the fires of hell, you know? Jesus says, renounce it and turn away from it. But what exactly does it mean to put sin to death? N.T. Wright, who's a New Testament scholar who wrote a little commentary on the book of Colossians, put it like this. He said, to put something to death, oh, there it is, my quote. To put something to death, you must cut off its lines of supply. This is interesting. He says, to put something to death, you must cut off its lines of supply. And here he's drawing imagery from the world of the battlefield. And you think about, uh, there's an army over here and one over here, and one is being fed through their lines of supply, ammunition and weapons. And if you want to win that battle, you've got to cut off the lines of supply so that they have no more ammunition to fire at you. And N.T. Wright says, you need to do that with your own life. You need to cut off the lines of supply. And then he says this, It is futile and self-deceiving to bemoan one's inability to resist the last stage of temptation when earlier stages have gone by unnoticed or even eagerly welcomed. So he says, you cannot eagerly welcome this stuff. You cannot entertain it. You cannot play with it. You have to call it out and cut it out and, and cast it far from you. Or as the old Puritan Thomas Chalmers said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. So we need to take radical action against the sin in our life, but we also need to pursue that which is good for us. That's why he begins this whole passage by saying, set your mind on things above, not on things of this earth, and seek those things which are above. You know, sometimes the best way to avoid sin is to have something more important to do. Have you found that to be true? You know, some of us need to go about doing something better than the the dysfunction that we've involved ourselves in. For some of you, you know, doing something more important might be going out for a run or reading more or turning off the TV and getting off social media and getting off the internet and actually putting healthy stuff in your brain. Something more important for some of us might simply be to say you're sorry rather than to keep launching into the person and engaging in self-justification. Sometimes something more important to do may be to go to therapy or to get a nap. If Maybe the reason why you're on edge all the time is because you're not getting enough sleep because you need to get up and read your Bible in the morning. Darn it! But then you're not kind to anybody afterwards. And so sometimes the best way to avoid sin is to have something more important to do. So let me just ask you, what is the action you need to take Today? What are those places and spaces in your life and in my life where we may be engaged in destructive patterns of behavior with our speech, our words, our attitudes, our mindset, what we do with our bodies, what we do with our eyes, what we do with our imagination? Where are places? where you are actually being pulled down back into the old life that you left behind a long time ago. He says, put that behind you and put on the new self. Become who you are. Look, I I know some of us, we've been in church for a very long time, and you've heard sermons before that have made you feel guilty and that you need to take action. And sometimes maybe your life is gone in fits and starts where you try new things and then you fail and you try new things and then you fail. And you're like, okay, I get this whole compelling vision, intention and deliberate action. But, you know, I, I feel weak and I feel like I'm stuck and I feel guilty and I feel ashamed. And quite frankly, being in a space like this, it just makes me feel worse. Listen, here's the final thing I want to say. Here's the good news. Not everything depends upon us. There is a vision that is broader and more compelling than the vision you have for your own life. And that's the vision that God himself has for you. And there is an intention that is stronger and more faithful than the intentions that you have for your own life. And it is God's intention for you. And there is deliberate action that God, the creator of heaven and earth, has done on your behalf and on my behalf in order ultimately to break sin's power over our life. It is ultimately the love of God when it breaks into our hearts and lives and we discover that God is our companion on this journey up the mountain, that God is not a signpost that simply tells us where we need to begin the journey. God actually is our companion. He is our guide. He is our strength. He is our support. He is the one who goes before us and the one who goes behind us. And he is with you always, even until the end of the age. And his grace is strong and his love is un, it's unmerited and it's unending and it's eternal and it's for you. And so as we close our service together, we're going to do so by sharing in the Lord's Supper. And it's in this practice, Jesus reminds us that he is present with us. He is beside us. He has come among us ultimately so that we might experience his freedom in our lives. The band is going to come up now, and I'm just going to close this in prayer. I would invite you, even as the band sings this next song, it's a song of confession, just to take space and name areas in your own life, maybe where you see some repeated patterns of dysfunction and unhealth and destruction, and call those out before God's face. God is here in this place with us. God is closer to you right now than the person sitting next to you. And he is for you, and he is not against you. And so even as we sing this next song, I would just encourage you to take this space, use it to confess your need for his grace in your own life, and then I'll come back up after the song is over and I'll lead us in partaking in the Lord's Supper together. So let's pray. Our great God and Father, we thank you and we praise you that you have not left us to ourselves, but you have come after us. And we pray, oh God, that your power would break into each one of our lives and that you would transform us, that you would make us into the kind of people that you want us to be, those who are marked by compassion and love and patience and forgiveness and grace, that know your joy and peace. God, work in us, we pray. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.